Hi everyone, happy new year and welcome back to Big Little Choices. We hope you had a wonderful holiday season and are ready to dive back into the new year with new intentions and courage around any unconventional choices you've been afraid to make. As a quick reminder, I will be on maternity leave for 3 months, so this will be the last episode for a bit before we resume regular programming in April. Hopefully till then you'll have an opportunity to catch up on any missed episodes and as always if you have suggestions on topics we should cover in the next season do let us know. So in today's conversation we'll be talking to a special guest who is not here to talk about her choices but more as an educator around raising emotionally intelligent humans. We talk about so many difficult choices that mothers have to make for their families and part of this I've always been very curious about how we can prepare our children better to be resilient and adaptable to these diverse choices. My guest today, Alyssa Blas Campbell, is a early childhood educator and talks about how we can not only help our kids build an emotional toolkit to cope with tough feelings but also teach them about making good choices when we're not around to support their decision making. Hope you enjoy this episode. To start with, I'd love to hear from you about yourself and the work that you're doing. Thanks so much for having me on. I am Alyssa Blask Campbell, and I run Seed and Sew. And my master's is in early childhood, and I have worked with tiny humans for a number of years in different capacities. And I found that I had information as a professional in early childhood to so much information that I felt like parents didn't have inform- have access to. And so I wanted to kind of bridge that gap and really expand what the village means to me. Uh, so we created Seed and Sew and now have a number of tools for folks who are trying to raise emotionally intelligent humans. My research and my background is in emotional development. Uh, so we host a podcast and have blog posts and riveting weekly discussions over on Facebook and a number of different outlets for folks to get access to our tools. I want to talk about how do we build resiliency and adaptability in kids right and the reason i ask it is if you've heard some episodes of the podcast you'll notice that every episode is about an unconventional choice or even if not unconventional somewhat of an unusual choice that a mother has made for her family and this could be everything from amputating a leg to adoption to surrogacy to homeschooling and while some of these choices do have an effect on the mothers absolutely they will also have a profound impact on the child either in their childhood or as they grow up and become adults so i really want to hear from you about you know as we think about making these choices how do we make sure that our kids are strong and confident even if they grew up in somewhat of an unconventional setup or were made to accept somewhat of an unusual choice So when we're talking about resiliency, we really are talking about the capacity for self-awareness and self-regulation, which are two big parts of emotional intelligence. I, I run these parent support groups and I ask folks at the beginning, who do you want your kids to be when they grow up? Like, what do you want from them? And almost unanimously across the board, one of the answers is happy. I want them to be happy. And of course, we all want that, right? And the key, there are two key components to happiness. And one is gratitude practice and the other is emotion processing. They have to have the tools to navigate the hard stuff 
the challenging moments, the frustration, the anger, the disappointment, the embarrassment that we will all experience in order to get back to feelings of calm, contentment, joy, happiness. And so for us, when we're looking at this, I want to not just look at like how do we raise happy kids, but how do we raise resilient kids? How do we raise kids who have a toolbox to navigate whatever comes their way in life? Because uh, we don't get to control kids' experiences. We do get to control the toolbox that they have to navigate them. And I, I love so much about your podcast because I think I don't think there's one right way to do this. I don't think there's one right way to raise tiny humans. Uh, what I want is for us to be building an emotional development toolbox for kids to pull from so that whenever they're experiencing something that makes them feel uncomfortable, if they feel nervous, or if maybe down the road they look back and they feel disappointment about something, that they have a toolbox to navigate those hard feelings. One of the things that we did was outline five phases of emotion processing. What is our brain and body going through to process an emotion? So phase one is allowing yourself to feel or allowing the tiny humans to feel. All phases, uh, we, whether you are three years old, 30 years old, 80 years old, we all go through the same processes when we are processing an emotion. So phase one is allowing yourself to feel. This would be not distracting out of a feeling or trying to solve the problem right away so that the feeling goes away. It sounds so much easier said than done, right? Like so many of us have been like, yikes, I'm feeling anxious. I'm going to scroll on Instagram and numb that feeling a little bit, right? And we can do it with tiny humans too, or we don't, it, it's so hard to see someone you love experience a hard emotion. And so we all want to make it stop. And in doing so, sometimes what we do is uh, like distract them out of a feeling, et cetera. So really focusing on allowing them to feel is phase one. So can we talk a little bit more in terms of real time, how we implement that with our kids, which is, I'm assuming it means, and which I think a lot of us try to do is when your child is angry about something, instead of distracting them and saying, oh, let's go play a game or let's go read a book, you let them accept that feeling. So is it something like, I understand and I acknowledge your feeling? Is that how that first step would translate into action? Yeah. So the first step is even like right before, even before you're validating, um, which is actually phase two is like validating and recognizing what they're feeling. But in phase one, you're really just letting them feel it. So letting them cry or letting them express their feelings. And with some caveats here, if they're hurting themselves or somebody else, then we're going to hold their hands so that they don't hit or stop them from um, any self-harm. But it, the idea is that we're not saying things like, don't cry about this. It's not a big deal. You're okay. Right. Instead of like the minimizing of the feelings, we're really letting them feel it. And then in phase two, we're going to move into just what you were just saying, where we're validating the feelings. And the kicker here is providing empathy instead of sympathy. And our amazing researcher, Brene Brown, has highlighted that sympathy drives disconnection and empathy drives connection. And so we want to connect with people here. And we've all felt this as adults when you're having a hard emotion and somebody comes in and they're like, oh, I understand that you're feeling sad. And then they try to 
like either one up you or make it so that you feel responsible for their feelings in some capacity. It could be like, oh, I know that it's really hard that your daughter is having a tough time at school. At least your son's doing really well, or at least that will serve her well later in life. The silver Uh, lining, right? Which oftentimes we don't want to hear about when we're going through something difficult. Exactly. It doesn't add to the connection. What it really does is say, your hard feelings are uncomfortable for me and I don't really want to be around them, right? So we put a silver lining on it. And what we want to focus on here is really connecting with these tiny humans. And you don't have to agree with why they're feeling what they're feeling, right? Sometimes it feels like, whoa, there's no way that it should be this big of a deal that you got an orange cup instead of a purple cup, right? Like we can have these giant tantrums over something that for us seems like it's really not a big deal. But instead, what we want to focus on is what we are connecting over, not why. So in the same sense of like, if they're disappointed over the color of the cup, that they got an orange cup and they really wanted a purple one, It's not our job to decide if they should be disappointed over that. It's our job to meet them where they are. And if you've ever felt disappointment, you can connect over disappointment. If you've had that feeling before, you know what it feels like. That's what we're connecting over. That's great. And then I do have a question over here, Alisa, which is I think this is one of the things that my husband and I are frequently not on the same page about, which is he is a silver lining kind of a guy. And it comes with a very healthy dose of uh, perspective and gratitude. So going back to the same example of here is an orange cup and there's a purple cup. And while you would want to acknowledge and empathize, I might hear something on the lines of, but we should be so grateful that we even have these two cups. So Mm. is that a right time? And do tiny humans have the ability to process that perspective and gratitude in those moments? Or should we be saving that for a later time? Yeah, good question. So to be honest, nobody is in the space to accept that, not even just tiny humans, but adult humans as well. So what happens when you're having a hard feeling is you're in your amygdala, which is your feelings brain. And when you're in your amygdala, your brain sends neurons to your prefrontal cortex, your rational thinking brain, to shut it down so that you aren't using like rationale when you're in your feelings brain. To give you an example of this, like if you were being attacked by a lion, we wouldn't want your brain to be like, oh, should I run away? Is now a good time? How should We don't want you in a rational place. What we want is that you're not using judgment. You're just reacting in a way of survival. And so our brain shuts down the prefrontal cortex. And when a kid is having, or anybody is having a big emotion, you're living in your amygdala, your feelings brain. And our job as the supporter of the emotion, as the parent, if that's the role that you're playing in this, is to show up and support them in leaving the amygdala to get back to the prefrontal cortex. So they really are not in a space to rationalize, to problem solve, to navigate conflict resolution, to practice gratitude when they're still in the amygdala. So what we're going to do is like walk through these phases and phase five is going to be where we are navigating potentially gratitude practice, potentially conflict res or problem solving. But when we are still in our feelings brain, we really can't even take in that information. Yeah, I can completely relate to that. So I'm not surprised that it's 
even especially harder for tiny humans too. So that's great. So what is phase three then? Phase three is security in the feelings. This is where we acknowledge that you won't feel this way forever, right? So oftentimes when we are acknowledging this, we're using the opposite feeling word, something along the lines of how can I help you feel calm uh, after we have already validated the disappointment, frustration, anger, et cetera. And then I'm going to offer up the opposite word. So if they're scared, I might say, oh, how can I help you feel safe? And what this does for the uh, brain is it signals to the brain, oh, there are other feelings out there. It's okay for me to feel this one because it's on a continuum of feelings. I'm not going to feel this way forever. And when we see folks who are struggling with, say, anxiety, this is where they're getting stuck, is they're getting stuck in one emotion and the brain is not identifying like, oh, there are other feelings out there. I'm not going to feel this way forever. Often three leads us right into phase four. So phase four is coping. And there are two types of coping. This is where in the research, it was so interesting to see where folks were like having a hang up. And this seemed to be the hardest phase for people. There are two types of coping. We have coping mechanisms and coping strategies. Coping mechanisms are temporary quick fixes that help our bodies stop feeling. It's what we are naturally going to turn to because our brain immediately is like, oh, I don't want to feel this. This is uncomfortable. So, so is this, an example of this a distraction like, oh, I'm just going to watch TV or I'm going to go get myself something unhealthy to eat? It totally could be, exactly. And it could be having, scrolling on a screen. It could be having a drink. It could be for kids, often distraction. Or in infancy we or, or early toddlerhood, it might be like a pacifier or a lovey. And to be honest, like we recommend that uh, when we're really young, we are starting with coping mechanisms and we, we build coping strategies. There's something you build over time. And so it might be like a uh, lovey or a pacifier. It could be a snack. It could be hurting somebody else in order to feel powerful or in control. Another really common one is trying to solve the problem. I had this little girl who uh, I was like, I asked her, how can I help you feel calm? And she was like, I am calm. <laughs> and as she's like yelling it at me, right? So it was so clearly not calm. But what she wanted was just to solve the problem. She wanted to rush through this. So many of us, that's our inclination. We don't want to feel the hard thing. Um, it could also be distraction with a toy. So then coping strategies are, it's going to take a little bit longer to be, you're going to be in the mo an emotion a little bit longer when you're turning to a coping strategy. It doesn't numb it as quickly because uh, what your body's doing is slowing down and it's moving the cortisol out of your body. And we are moving back into the prefrontal cortex from the amygdala. It takes a little bit of time, not to say it's going to be like 20 minutes every time or something like that, but it, it'll typically be a little longer than a coping mechanism. This could be drawing, coloring, painting. Um, it might be movement or exercise. So as an adult, you might be like, oh, I'm going to go for a run. And you're really moving that cortisol throughout your body. And then you're going to start producing serotonin, which helps your body feel calm again. It could be tapping into breath, breathing. It could be reading a book, turning to mantras or phrases that are helpful. It might be free writing, 
really just like what we're going to be doing here is slowing down and either using the body to do some movement, which can move the cortisol, or really going inward and like reading a book, coloring, uh, drawing, those sorts of things that help us process the emotion. But how do we help kids accept coping strategies, right? Because as I think of my own four-year-old, um, he's most likely going to want a coping uh, mechanism, which is immediately suck his thumb, play something, scream, throw something on the floor because he's just so frustrated and he's having such big feelings. So how do we start to teach our kids that these coping strategies, even though seem like they're a little bit harder to adopt, are the ones that are going to give them sort of like, you know, the toolkit that we've been talking about? Totally. So um, it'll look a little different at different ages and stages. I'll give you an example of like a younger kiddo like yours, and then I'll give you another one of an older kiddo in case a parent's tuning in with, say, a 10-year-old or something like that. Um, so in the younger kiddos, what we're going to do is we're going to validate that emotion, and then I'm going to say, oh, you're so frustrated. I really want to help you solve this problem or um, whatever the end goal is here. I really want to help you. How can I help you feel calm so that we can work through this together? And then after this, at when you're first starting the work, they're not going to be like, oh, I'm going to go read, right? Like that has to be mm -hmm. our expectation. They're not going to offer this up on their own. I like to offer two and it will really depend on who your kid is in the same way that as adults, we all cope differently. My husband likes time and space by himself. And if I talk to him, in fact, if we're in conflict and he gets quiet, my inclination is to fill that silence with a whole lot of word vomit, right? Like I just want to keep talking and talking and talking. And the more I talk, the quieter he gets. And so we've learned that he needs space to process. I like to move my body. I want to be like active. I could go for a run. I could literally do like jumping jacks, right? And so for kids, what this could look like, I've had some kiddos who really want that physical input. And so I might offer them a hug. Could, could I give you a hug to help you feel calm so that we could talk about this? Um, or if they're a kid who needs some space and some quiet, would you like to draw a picture? And then when you're calm, we can talk about it. Or could, would you like to read a book? We're going to offer them usually two options uh, for, for coping. And then the, honestly, like at first, it's going to feel really uncomfortable if you're just starting this, just like any new thing that we implement feels uncomfortable. And the more consistently you do it, a, the more your kids will automatically start tapping into this. Um, and B, the more comfortable it starts to feel for us. The thing is, so many of us as adults don't do this for ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like often we have a hard emotion and we just keep going. We quote unquote power through or right. dive right into the conversation. And if we can start to regulate our own emotions and model this, man, it's a game changer. Um, and it helps us get more comfortable with it. But I had, a, I had a mom reach out recently. She has been following Seed for about a year and doing this work. And her kiddo was 10 when they started. He just turned 11. And he had this lemonade stand planned with his best friend who was supposed to come over and do the lemonade stand. And his best friend didn't show up. And so he comes in and he's bummed and he goes right in and he's like, mom, can I play Minecraft? Mm -hmm. And she was like, nobody, not right now. He goes into the bathroom and he's crying and he comes out and she was like, hey, bud, you really wanted Jake to come over and he didn't come for the uh, lemonade stand. That's so disappointing. I'm really sorry that happened. Would you like a hug? 
And he shook his head no. And then through the tears ended up saying yes and Mm -hmm. collapsing into his mama for a hug. And so she hugged him for a little bit. And when he pulled back, she asked him, did you want to play Minecraft because it would make your body feel better? And he said, yes. And she said, you know what, bud? you can play Minecraft after you move your body. And she was like, go for 10 minutes. You can move your, you could climb a tree. You can go for a walk, et cetera. He went in their backyard and he climbed a tree and he totally forgot about Minecraft. He ended up hanging out in the backyard. And he, what she encouraged him to do was to say, the screen isn't necessarily bad, right? So many of these things aren't, the coping mechanisms aren't necessarily like bad for us it's when we're using them to numb a feeling. So she was like, you can play Minecraft after you've tapped into the coping strategy was essentially the response. Yeah, absolutely. And I see that with my son too, which is he'll ask to watch one of his favorite cartoons and he'll say, oh, can I watch Paw Patrol when he's in the midst of like, you know, being really disappointed about something or being really angry about something. And I really try hard to not build this relationship between anger and disappointment and these big feelings with watching TV or watching a show as the only way in which it's going to get him out of that feeling. And I think to your point, it is a coping mechanism that, you know, you don't want really want to encourage versus taking the time to listen or doing a little activity with them and kind of getting them back to a good state of mind before we can say, okay, you know what, now you can choose to do what you thought was going to help you. But instead, we just took a little bit of time to get back to sort of the right frame of mind before we can do it. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, if we turn to a mechanism and we numb it, what it really does is kind of push it right below the surface. And mm-hmm. so, so often, then we'll see another tantrum within the next like 15, 20 minutes because that hard feeling hasn't been processed from before. Right. It's living right below the surface, almost like ready to blow. <laughs> and so, which leads me to what is phase five, the final phase of this uh, process? Yeah, phase five is problem solving. This is where if we have done phases one through four, now they are in their prefrontal cortex and they are ready to problem solve, do conflict resolution if there was a conflict here. Um, Now they're ready to talk about it essentially and navigate it further. This reminds me of something that I always think about, which is, you know, we refer to them as children, but what you said is more appropriate, which is tiny humans. And that they are like us in some ways. They want to be acknowledged. They want to be heard. They want to be offered a solution. They want to be told that they will feel better versus telling them that, you know, either trivializing their feelings or telling them that, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm really happy to hear how we can put all of these different steps into place to help our kids sort of deal with these big emotions, which they see so frequently uh, when they're little. So I do want to jump into the next topic, which I would love to get your thoughts on. And this is again around choices. And, you know, I think a lot about there's only so much that we can curate for our children. And, you know, an example is when you send them out to school, they're hearing things from other kids. They're seeing kids try different um, foods or talk about different shows they're watching or indulge in different kinds of behavior, which quite frequently might not be the right behavior. So I often think about I can only sort of, you know, guide my child through life to a certain point. And it's easy for me to do at home when I say, that is not right. Like, instead of this, why don't we do that? But it's hard for me to sort of, you know, guide them through some of these things, even though there's wonderful educators and caregivers outside of 
parents as well. But what I want to hear from you is how do you think about helping your kids learn how to make good choices? I think what that means is going to be different for everybody. So figuring out, first of all, like, what does that look like for you, for your family unit, for your kid, um, for you culturally? And then ultimately trusting them, trusting them and having communication. So, so, so often with our tiny humans, we are controlling so much of their lives, right? And it's really a part of being little is that there, there's not a whole lot of choice a lot of the time. So really being able to give them the why behind something, I think can be really, really helpful mm -hmm. when we can say things like, hey, babe. I'm going to go brush my teeth because it'll help my teeth stay clean and strong and healthy so that they can continue to help me eat foods that fuel my body, right. right? Being able to give them the why behind something and modeling is so key. Um, they're watching us all the time for better or for worse and to really see like, what are our values? What is important here? And as you said, they want to be seen. Uh, we all do. We all want to be seen and acknowledged and recognized. And so if we are really seeing them when they're having these big emotions and we're turning in those moments, or if we're turning and saying, wow, I saw you hand that toy to your little brother. That was so thoughtful of you. I bet that made his heart so happy. Thanks for being really kind. If we can acknowledge these, what I would consider pro-social behaviors or quote-unquote positive behaviors, we can reinforce, I'm watching you, I can see you, and we're acknowledging them for those things. There is some really cool research on raising empathetic humans and how do we foster that. And uh, Dr. Michelle Borba wrote the book Unselfie. And in this, in her research, she found that when we acknowledge positive behaviors or pro-social behaviors on a four to one ratio, four positive to every one negative, kids realize that they're going to get attention and connection through these positive moments. And so they're more apt to be asking for our attention in those times. And um, so really like if we're looking for building like positive character traits and choices in terms of who they are in, in, as a character, then I really want to be focusing on how we are showing up and acknowledging them. If we're talking about things like food, I actually on my podcast interviewed The Natural Nurturer. I highly recommend her food blog. She also has a degree in education and she talks about how we can't control what or how much kids consume. We can only control what we provide. So if you're going to put out on a plate of, if you're going to put out a plate of food and we're going to put out chicken and broccoli and um, rice and maybe chocolate chips and they might eat the chocolate chips first and then they might dive into more food or they might ask for more chocolate chips and then you have the decision to say like oh we're all done with chocolate chips you can eat the other food on your plate mm -hmm. or you could be all done um, really giving them the control there to learn right. about their bodies and then we can provide the education behind things like yeah, we eat chicken because it helps our body 
get protein so that we can be strong or I eat carrots because it helps my eyes so that I can see really just the education piece of teaching kiddos why we're putting what we're putting into our bodies, what it does. And the fact that sometimes we eat what we call fun food and sometimes we eat to fuel our body and both are acceptable and fine. I think so often we put like sweets, quote unquote, on a pedestal. And so of course kids are like, oh, if I eat my broccoli, then I get my sweets. Then what we're saying is you have to eat your broccoli, even though it's not good in order to get this thing that's really good. Exactly. Uh, Yep. And I think it's this association of healthy foods not being tasty or good enough, which is why I have to bribe you with something that's sweeter or, you know, more tasty for your taste buds in order for you to eat the healthy stuff. And I think that association is so important to like not have. Exactly. So I think really just paying attention to, uh, I guess, how we're framing things and asking ourselves sometimes like, what is our fear? I think so so many times we set um, boundaries or rules because we have a fear and it might be from our social programming. It might be from our childhood. It might be something like, oh, you have to finish your plate. And -hmm. our fear is they're going to go to bed hungry and then they're going to wake up in the middle of the night or that they aren't going to get enough food. And it's my job to make sure that they are healthy and strong and growing. And there are so many fears I think that parents are wrestling with underneath the surface that to be able to pause and say, what is my fear here can be so powerful to acknowledge. Yes. And I think also accepting and truly accepting that they're going to make mistakes, mm-hmm. right? In the same way that every single one of us does, that we are not perfect and perfection cannot be our goal. Otherwise, we're going to be wrestling with disappointment every day. Uh, we as humans are fallible and that's okay. How we respond to making a mistake is important and matters, but letting them know it's okay for them to make mistakes. We can navigate this together. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. I feel like I learned so much and I hope our audience feels the same way. So to wrap up, um, you know, I just want to hear from you if there's any one last piece of advice or anything you want to share with our parenting community around how they should be thinking about emotional development for their children. Yeah, I would say give yourself grace, man. Everybody that I encounter is so worried about doing this perfectly and trying not to make their own mistakes. And so often we are comparing our messy insides to somebody else's curated Instagram photo or Facebook post. And man, it can be a really tough way to navigate this journey. So give yourself grace and let yourself off the hook, knowing that everybody is dropping the ball sometimes or making mistakes here and there. And we get back up and we keep going forward and learning and navigating this all together. You're not alone in this journey. Thank you for listening to this episode and I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back soon with another interview. And until then, if you have any feedback or comments on the kinds of choices you want to hear more about, let me know.